0: Hey there, my name is Andy Baker and you're listening to the Baker's Dozen podcast where I serve up atypical analysis of current TV series, 13 delicious bites at a time. This is Wattcast number two, where I'll share my thoughts on the first three episodes of The Wheel of Time. Welcome back, everyone. So at long last, the Wheel of Time is on our television screens. And uh, so last week's uh, episode of The Baker's Dozen was heavily scripted, um, just starting out and I'm trying things out. So I'm going to play around this time with a looser format, working off of notes, um, but otherwise just riffing a bit. So if you have a strong opinion about which way works better, um, go to b13podcast.com, leave me a note or a voicemail, and uh, you know we'll work on this together. Uh, one other housekeeping note, um, I'm not going to be doing too much editing before putting this out. I'm emphasizing creating content uh, over um, trying to be a perfectionist when it comes to this sort of stuff. But if and when um, folks start supporting the podcast, uh, I'll invest in software like Descript and um, you know maybe hire uh, an editor um, and invest in better equipment and transforming my office into a podcasting studio. All that stuff that new podcast new podcasters really get into. Um, but you know, those are all long range goals. Uh, for now, let's just, uh, get to the episode, shall we? Why? Moraine. So Rosamund Pike is putting in the strongest performance, uh, on the show by a long shot. She owns every scene that she's in. Um, very impressive. Um, and, but you know that this is how it goes with shows like this uh, kind of like the game of thrones and i know people are sick of the comparisons but um it's apropos here that uh you end up having these veteran actors uh, who carry the show while the kids end up growing into their roles um, and you know in return you know she's committing <laughs> eight to ten years of her career um, I'm sure she can work other things in around it, but it's still a very demanding filming schedule. Um, but you know, she's also a producer, um, and you know those production credits. Um, she could end up being very handsomely rewarded for all of the hard work that she's doing. Um, but uh, you know she's promotable, um, but also just incredibly capable. Uh, really enjoying every moment she's uh, on the screen. Um, just a very intense presence. Um, But um, other thoughts on on Maureen. Um, I'm not really uh, sold on the sexualization. Like right out of the gate, um, they're showing her um, shoulders as she's getting dressed. Um, And uh, then later we have the uh, hot tub sequence with Lan. Um, And then, you know, there's definitely some, they're leaning into some sexual tension between her and Lan. Um, you know, even when he, when she's out cold and he's saying, you know, I'm right here. Um, uh, I mean, I know I'm not here just to criticize or critique, um, the differences. Um, I'm just not sold on, um, the dynamic here and, in sort of sexualizing the character. I don't know that they need it. Um, but, um. You know, it's an active choice. I'm curious to see where they go with it. I'm just not sold on it. That's all. Um, I do like that they did a very nice job in establishing um, Aes Sedai, the overriding pragmatism. um, And, uh, you know, she um, ends up, you know, having a nice balance, Rosamund Pike, in in sort of the um, intensity of the role. Um, while at the same time softening a little bit um, when the ferryman ends up going to his death, um, but then quickly going back to business. Even that's just delivery of that one line uh, about uh, you know not being a woman who's uh, used to being made to wait and her saying, no, I'm not, um, just nails it. Um, it's so interesting, she's so strong that... Um, You know, the kids have a hard time standing up um, and, you know, holding their own in a scene with her. So it kind of really makes sense for her to be down and out during the whole Shadar-Lagoth sequence. Um, It gives the kids a chance to shine. um, And, you know, without uh, her calling everyone's attention over to her. Anyway, enough about Maureen for now. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of time to talk about her later. I'm just really interested to see what they end up doing with her character moving forward. Two, Perrin. I'm going to jump into Perrin here, um, just because of the controversy around him, um, or what they did with his character. Um, and I'll just start by saying, I, I get it, um, and and I fall into the side of things where um, I'm a bit of a purist, um, and you know, you you only muck about if you have to muck about, uh, but. Um, I understand the impulse to change his um, backstory a bit and all of the characters, really. And, and frankly, I, I do wonder, um, Rafe and anyone else who was involved in that early development process, um, if they, like this was an early test, like nobody wants to commit um, 8 to 12 years of their career Uh, to something where they're just going to be uh, faithfully slash uh, slavishly following um, what is on the page in the novels and just condensing but not being able to bring anything new to the story Um, and it's sort of an early litmus test like um, when you're adapting something you sort of put out feelers as to what will you let me do? Um, Can I expand here? Uh, Is is everyone going to be super sensitive about any possible changes? Um, And you throw some material out and see how they react. And um, it feels like that's what they did with these characters. Like, okay, what if we decided to age up the kids a little bit? What if we decided to and give them a backstory. What if we wanted to, in an effort to accelerate character development, you know, we do away with a bunch of stuff that happens in the books, and he has a wife, and he kills her. And they said, okay. And it's like, okay, that now I can develop these characters and bring something uh, new to the story. Um, and um, all that said, You know, even though it's like, okay, I understand, I also don't think it works particularly well. Um, You know, my son, who I watch this with, gets uh, annoyed with me uh, when I predict things based on... um, what is happening on screen because there's always that filter when you're a writer um, to say well why is that included in there and as soon as the wife said um, or did not say back he says i love you and she says i know pulls a han solo doesn't does not say she loves him back um i was like oh gosh she's dead there's no other way around it like that's what they're going to do with this character And I know people have made a big deal out of the women in refrigerator trope, Um, and uh, frankly, I I agree, like, why are you putting someone disposable in there? I understand the impulse, but you have to resist the impulse. Anyway, I understand it replaces and accelerates what happens in the novels um, and kind of turns him into this Hercules character. Like there's an element of the Hercules myth uh, where um, he ends up having these rages where he kills people who are near and dear to him. He ends up having to pay penance to the gods, um, and at one point he has to dress up like a woman and be a servant. Anyway, it's very interesting aspects of the Hercules uh, myth that you may not know. Um, Anyway, so Perrin is kind of Herculean, right? He's like the big, strong guy and um you know he's the hulk right um, doesn't say a lot and um but has sort of intimidating power but there's a fear that comes with that power uh and so he's going to struggle with uh, what he is capable of and it's all going to go back to this moment where he killed his wife um, and you know, it'll set up all kinds of issues when it comes to the potential for any later romance for him, cause he's not going to want to let anyone get close to him because the last person who did that ended up, uh, taking an ax. So, um, anyway, I, I find it interesting that they decided to go down this path, but I don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, he doesn't do a lot in the, you know, the you know, outside of this, um, he's there and I like him. The actor has some presence to him. Um, He holds the space well, but um, he doesn't do a lot. So we just sort of have to wait and see uh, where he goes from here. Three. Three. Matt. Now, here too, just like with Perrin, um, you know, it's interesting to see what they wanted to tweak in his backstory and think about what it gave the writers in the writer's room. Uh, making his parents be troubled and, you know, his father hitting on other people and his mother being frustrated and angry about this. And, um, you know, it allows uh, Matt to uh, engender some sympathy and empathy um, because of his connection to his sisters. Um, He allows, uh, you know, Um, Matt to come across as uh, loving but also explaining why he has his own issues when it comes to being a thief um, and um, at least insinuated a bit of a womanizer Um, but you know here we sort of venture into territory again it's part of the aging up process and I get it Um, but um, it it threatens to make him too uh, unlikable perhaps Um, although, you know, there's, you know, pros and cons and give and take with everything. And that, you know, by amping up his thievery, it sets up, um, you know, the moment later, um, with, you know, the bracelet and then, um, you know, taking the dagger despite, um, you know, in Shadrach Lugoth, um, despite having been told not to do that. Um, but, um, I don't know. Um, I, I I'm just I question my own feelings and motives in that um, you know I'm, I'm battling against my own uh, purist feelings about adaptation um, and just wondering if is the payoff worth the change. I think by and large this is uh, much better uh, overall than what they did with Perrin. Um but um, I'm gonna sort of reserve judgment, I suppose. I, I guess I should reserve judgment for everything always. Um, this isn't about judging. Um, it's just a, an opinion about uh, some what the writers did. Um, I don't know that you needed to do this uh, to Abel and uh, Matt, but um, I guess it's interesting. I um, a side note, because I, 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 I'm not going to get into it later, but um, Shadar Lagoth, I love the look and feel of it, um, but I, the, the whole lack of having Mordeth in there um, I wonder about that as well. Um, what the thought process was, uh, you're going to hear this over and over again. I just wish that, uh, I could have been a fly on the wall just to watch, uh, how all these choices were made or to have an opportunity to talk with, uh, the writers, um, which I'm hoping to do. I hope to reach out and, uh, see if they will, uh, chat with me about their choices and their thought process and how it worked in the room. Uh, anyway, um, you know, little details like you know, Rand's little comment about, uh, Matt being interested in older women. I'm not sure we really need to know that. I don't know what it gives us. Um, I mean, it's character expanding and, you know, frankly, the characters in the books probably could have used some of that. They were a little bit, uh, you know, interchangeable to some degree outside of some key characteristics. Uh, and this expands on that, but, um, I don't know. It's it's kind of an unsavory detail that I'm not sure we need. Um, but, again, we'll see what they do with it. Um, anyway, um, Matt, as a character and as an actor from Barney Harris, it really came into his own in episode three. Uh, I really liked his scene with Dana when he is tempted by having a new beginning. But, you know, he talks about how he's got people who need him. Um, that's a real moral and ethical quandary there, um, and you could feel it in him. It was it was good. Uh, it was well done, well written, well acted, and same with um, his interactions with Tom. I know some people are a bit up in arms in the tone of Tom. He was fine to me, and I'll talk more about him in a bit, but um, the interactions between the two of them um, give me some... Uh, high hopes for where it goes from here. Um, they played off each other uh, really well, I think. Um, and my overarching point when it comes to Matt uh, and Barney Harris, um, the his acting, I feel, is really good, um, the best of the younger actors, um, and it's a real loss that he's not going to come back in season two. I don't know if we're ever going to know the story. I don't even know if we need to. Uh, it's just a loss. Um, so... A shame, but, uh, again, we've got uh, a few more episodes with him, so let's see what he does with them. Four. Rand. Um, There's a reason why Rand rhymes with bland, I suppose. Um, I, A lot of the material we've gotten for him has been caught up in Eggwin stuff, and um, he hasn't really stood out to me, although there are a few points I wanted to make about Rand um, that highlight some of the other... Um, issues with the show um, and just topics when it comes to the show. One, um, I actually really liked when he lashed out at Moraine. I think it was well done. Um, but it was also, it came pretty quickly uh, and a bit out of nowhere, it, in large part because it wasn't set up as well as it could have been. Um, This is what happens when you accelerate the story and you don't spend enough time in the ordinary world. Um, Back to that hero's journey stuff that I talked about last week. There's a reason why you start with the ordinary world, get the call to adventure, resist the the call, and then eventually... um, You meet a mentor character and you end up crossing the threshold that all takes time because we need to know who these characters are under normal circumstances so we can see how they how those characteristics translate once they are tested and in unfamiliar circumstances where you hope that the good qualities continue to shine through but you'll see them have some negative qualities because they're in situations they haven't been in before um, and it's you just borrow on that time in the ordinary world over and over and over again. And when you accelerate through that, uh, you don't have that. And so when he lashes out at Moraine, we haven't seen anything like that out of him. And as a result, Egwin has to tell us that Rand is stubborn. She calls him stubborn to his face. And um, so that, that's classic. Instead of show, don't tell, it's tell, don't show. Like she's telling us that he is stubborn. We've seen nothing of it until this moment and it really should have seeds planted before this so it makes sense to us even if it is still a bit surprising um so this is what happens when it's like okay i i was shocked when i heard that they were only going to get eight episodes i thought at least 10 um but again it's expensive it's not my money but um you would think they'd spend a little more time in the ordinary world so that character moments like this could really pay off uh, even better than they do. Um, The acting carries the scene, um, but um, it could have been better. Um, I do like that they are expanding on Rand's character in him throwing comedy around back and forth with Matt. Um, It is... that's not a characteristic from the novels. Uh, and uh, I think it's kind of needed because it helps humanize, uh, Rand, um, in that, um, that, you know, wasn't on the page, but really is a part of anyone's existence. Like you don't get into a conversation with a character like Matt and be friends with a guy like Matt, unless you're going to be able to banter with him. And it's nice to see Rand do that. Uh, it was a cool moment. Uh, I hope to see more of that. Um. And finally, uh, and this is going to head into perhaps somewhat sensitive territory, um, but I just wanted to throw it out there. Um, You know, the whole thing with Dana, Rand, Matt, and Dana's questions uh, about uh, their sexuality, um, I'm totally good with it. I'm totally fine that that's a part of this world. I think it's great and wonderful. I'm just thrown, given the later revelation that when she talks about how, oh, my braid is too much like hers, she knows about all of the kids. She has been given information as a dark friend um, Mm -hmm. that uh, who to look for, who they want. Um, And so for her to be asking about their sexuality seems cheap in hindsight because it puts it out into the world, but she doesn't really need to ask that. It doesn't really get her anything as a dark friend in that conversation. It's not like it; it's needed in that conversation. It was just something that the writers wanted in there. Um, and so, um, I don't know. I, I, I Again, I like it being a, a part of the world of the story, but um, it feels like they put it in there for reasons uh, and then sort of undercut it given that Dana knows so much about them all. um, And um, it just didn't feel quite right, didn't sit all that well with me. also factoring into that is if they know this much because what she says insinuates that you know they've been watching all of them and have some sense about their interactions with one another and what they mean to one another specifically rand and uh, egwene um sorry i'm going to mispronounce that a bazillion times um it just raises the question how long have they been observed and um if they were observed why weren't they just killed uh but um setting all of that aside um I just wanted to raise that question, uh, about what Dana was asking about, um, and, uh, yeah, I'll move on before I, uh, dig the hole any deeper. Five, Egwin. Um, so this entry is going to be pretty, uh, brief, um, in that, um, frankly, uh, when I thought back over the three episodes, uh, I, the resounding chorus for me was, she's fine. She's interesting. Uh, the, you know, the the acting is solid, um, and what they're doing with the character fits. I mean, you can quibble with things like, well, she's not a part of the women's circle. That's not how the novels go. And this whole idea that you know she has to be uh, celibate to uh, you know, like, no, I, 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 you can complain. I'm not going to complain. It's all fine. Um, I mean, the one thing that sort of stuck out. To me, and I know a lot of people have talked about it already, this idea of amping up the uh, sexuality when it comes to her relationship with Rand. Um, You know, they're teenagers into their early 20s, um, and I bet if we were to go back and look at even repressive agrarian societies that there would have been a lot of sex being had. Um, and so it was all fine to me. Um, it actually is the one area where acceleration kind of works in that we understand what is being lost between her, uh, and Rand, uh, moving forward. Um, and, you know, the sacrifices that one makes, um, when duty calls, uh, and, you know, and create some tension between the two of them and led to some nice moments where he said he could not hate her, even though he's lashing out, um, emotionally. So, um, anyway, I'm going to keep this one brief. Um, I'll be curious where her character goes from here. Um, you know, obviously, um, she is one of the potential dragon reborns, um, and, um, you know, I, I liked that you know, her moment with Moraine and the hint of um her power and ability. Um but um yeah, you know, in these first three episodes um her development was less intriguing to me um than uh with the three guys. So I I put my energy and attention there and we'll see where things go with her. Six. Six. Nynaeve. Um, all right, so I'm starting to feel bad in that I'm also going to say that this one's going to be short as well, and I don't mean to shortchange uh, Nynaeve and Egwene. Um, obviously, I talked a lot about Moiraine, so I want to be balanced here along the gender lines because the show is very clearly trying to do that, go for an ensemble feel and try to balance the storylines. But uh, to be fair, um, Nynaeve ends up leaving the story for a healthy chunk of time, Um you know i don't know if even casual viewers um who were um watching thought oh that character has gone and dead given the time that she had and attention she had been given before but um anyway it was nice to see her uh, come back in a dramatic moment um certainly in a uh, a way that um, is a bit surprising, uh, for Lan, um, and, um, the dynamic between the two of them after that, um, was fun and fascinating for book viewer, or book readers, I'm sure. Um, but, um, and, you know, the choice to show her killing a trollic again, this is where I'm wondering, am I being a book purist or am I being a, um, TV writer who wonders, like, do we need to do this? Um, But her killing a Trolloc, it's a bit neither here nor there. I mean, obviously it establishes her fearlessness um, and um, her resourcefulness. Um, At the same time, um, I'm not sure you really need um, to establish her as a physical threat. I mean, maybe it sets up her ability to sneak up on land and be, you know, a physical presence Um, to deal with but um, I'm I'm, I'm hesitating here just because I don't want to give anything away moving forward when it comes to her character but again I'm not sure that uh, you needed it because I mean the actress is outstanding and doing a great job with what screen time she has so far sort of conveying this intensity um, that uh, definitely works with her character she's definitely embodying the character very well Um, and Um, I am just curious um, with, you know, Zoe Robbins, um, you know, moving forward, um, showing us, you know, just with how she talks and how she presents herself. how you know? Do you need a trollic scene like this? Anyway, it's but it's a, it's action. It's interesting. It's cool, and you end up with the visual of the blood in the water being in the fang slash Isidai, um symbol. So that's interesting. But all right. Um, hopefully, I'm going to have more to say uh, about all of the powerful women in this story uh, in uh, the episodes to come. Seven. Seven. Who's the dragon? So. Um, you know, I, I understand that, you know, they, they need to show um, why each of the characters could be the dragon uh, and reasons why they're not. Um, so while also, you know, in using that to create character moments, um, some positive and negative content for each of your principal characters. So you have uh, Mad having a heart of gold because he cares about his sisters, but he's a thief. And you have Perrin who seems loyal and steadfast, and clearly the other characters really like him <clears throat> but uh he killed his wife and then Rand, who is uh honorable um, but you know he's lashing out yelling at moraine um, so you know there's positive and negatives all there. Um, Egwene, you know it's similar. she clearly has power that could connect to her uh, being the dragon. Uh, at the same time, you know, having these small emotional clashes with Rand, um, <clears throat> you know, but, you know, like I said before, she's hasn't really spiked yet as a character, so we haven't had too much positive or negative. She's just been pretty steadfast, but that could be the dragon. Um, and I know they've mentioned five at this point as opposed to four, so throw Nynaeve into the mix. Um, And, you know, she's clearly uh, ferocious and capable. Um, But, um, you know, raises that question of given all of the changes that they've had in the story, would they dare change who the dragon is? Um, And I mean, I think the easy answer is uh, no way in heck they change who the dragon is. Um, And there are enough signs in the story Uh, in in the depiction that we're getting um that uh, they are staying um faithful there Um, certain shots certain moments where it's like okay um they're 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 hiding it reasonably well for the casual viewers um but uh if you're looking for clues um they're all there um i'm actually kind of curious if they were to take a poll of all of the non-book readers who are watching right now um who they think after the first three episodes, the dragon is what the breakdown would be um, and how accurate people would be. So um, I'll be curious how they continue to balance back and forth between positive and negative content. Um, And again, you know, those, those battles in the writer's room talking about like, how do we keep them, um, you know, keep the audience on their toes wondering who the dragon might be Um, and uh, you know, thinking about that in every scene um every moment that they're having with these characters um keeping it an open question because clearly they're leaning into the mystery element of it um which makes me wonder i early on i was predicting that they would not that they would reveal who the dragon is by about episode five um I'm still going to stick with that. Maybe it's episode six. They might push it a little bit further downstream. I don't think they're going to wait to the end of the season. Uh, and given the uh, number of insiders who keep referring to episode six and the fact that they sent six episodes uh, to the reviewers, so episode six has got to be big, right? And that makes sense. You have that big moment clash conflict um, where, you know, Certainly episode eight, but part of episode seven would be dedicated to planting all of the seeds for season two and then leaving us at a cliffhanger that you build up to in seven and eight, uh, which means six is the culmination of something, the end of something. Um, And so there's probably something big waiting for us at the end of six, and I think that's got to be connected to the reveal of the Dragon Reborn and the Dragon Reborn using powers um, that... uh, are I I, I'm looking forward to it. Let's just put it that way. Hey, story acceleration. Um, I touched on this earlier. Um, but you know, when it comes to the hero's journey, um, you know, there's a reason why things are slow at the beginning. And I understand that is running right up against the need to tell, uh, an epic story, the beginning of it anyway, and have it be a satisfying season of television in only eight hours. Um, and so there are just choices that are going to be made and we're not going to be happy with all of them. I'm sure the writers themselves are not happy with all of them. Rafe is certainly not happy with all of them. Um, you just try to make the best decisions that you can. And, um, you know, so they end up making some choices in the story which allow things like, okay, you know, we're going to have uh, very quickly establish our ordinary world. And then in comes Maureen, and she is doing the call to adventure. We get a very, very brief, we're not doing that. And the next thing you know, okay, Trollocs are there forcing the issue. Uh, and um, and then, you know, after the battle in Eamon's Field, Um, you, like, they leave so quickly, um, and part of the story design is such, uh, that it makes it possible, right, that, uh, Matt can leave, he can get, um, escape velocity because he's got bad parents, but he struggles with it because of, uh, the little girls, and of course they make up for that. Um, him leaving his sisters with that moment between Matt and Perrin where Perrin assures him that, you know, his parents will be looking in on the situation so that, you know, we can feel less blamey of Matt for walking away. Um, but, um, you know, this, that that element of having bad parents... You know, we can understand why Matt would leave. Uh, and Perrin, his wife is dead, so well, now suddenly he doesn't have to leave his wife to go on this adventure. Um, and so, you know, and he wants to get away from that pain, and so he can leave. And Egwin uh, was going to become um, a wisdom and. Um, So she was already going to choose a solo life for herself. And, you know, she's part of the women's circle now. And so, like, she can make her own decisions. And so she can walk away from Eamon's Field. And, you know, Rand, you know, seems to have a dynamic with his father where, you know, he's ready to strike out on his own. Uh, And so the story puts in all of these elements so that you can literally have the... um, resistance of the call be just a brief moment and then maureen is like all right now that that battle is over we're leaving and then they just leave there's no real big goodbyes there's a few small moments um but suddenly they're on horses and leaving because they knew that they had to get the heck out of human's field and on to the rest of the story because they had a goal for the end of the first season and they had to get there um again i get it it doesn't feel great. Um, that first episode ends up feeling very hasty as an end result into the second episode. Um, and, you know, things slow down a little bit after that, and we get some moments that are just world building moments, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, I just kind of wish that they had. Uh, a little more time to play with uh, in uh, establishing those early beats of the hero's journey including you know crossing the threshold like we get the whole terran fairy sequence um and again it just we get to the point of going into the supernatural world crossing the threshold so very quickly um and um something is lost in that nine nah. depiction of magic now, magic systems are very important um, in fantasy, um, <clears throat> specifically, I mean, obviously, whether it's books or TV shows, we have to understand how the magic works, what's the extent of it, um, You know, what's the range of powers, what are the limitations. Um, you know, Game of Thrones had an advantage in that there wasn't much magic in the world, but it was starting to increase. Dragons were returning, the Red Comet in the sky, all the rest of it. Um, here, obviously, you have magic wielders, and we get a glimpse right up front of Leandrin using the power. And here we get Lorraine um, using uh, magic. And um, we, as a viewer, need to know... Um, how it all works, to some degree anyway, uh, and, you know, again, what are the limitations? What does it mean to be powerful in it? Um, and, you know, what are our expectations so that you can meet some of those expectations but also defy some of those expectations? So the system is important because it needs to be internally consistent with the rules that it sets out. Now, um, visually, I will say that they, the weaves are very cool, um, I, um, I, I, you could feel a little sci-fi channel-esque at, at times. Um, maybe, I don't know, um, it, it maybe looked at that plus a step up. Um <clears throat> I'm very curious how they're going to uh depict magic moving forward and that we didn't see Leandrin weave anything it just happened it wasn't until we saw Moraine and we slowed things down we got to see some sense of what was going on um but visually I thought it was pretty cool um but it raised a lot of questions when it comes to um like Moraine is drawing on every element she does some fire stuff she does some earth stuff she does some you know lightning stuff you know so maybe some wind thrown in there some water I mean she's drawing on all of the elements Um, and you know that is a departure from how um, Robert Jordan set up his magic system Um, and so I'm kind of curious um, how they're going to depict it moving forward Uh, I will say that, you know, slowing things down and showing us the weaves um, and drawing on those elements, um, it was a nice counterpoint to the frenetic action. I'm not the hugest fan of shaking camera, um, you know, showing us the chaos of war. Um, It's, you know, the the camera, um, you know, that, that frenetic action, it just... It feels like a way to save money, and then it's like, well, we can't show a whole ton of people on screen, so we show you some people on screen and move the camera around a lot, so you can't really focus on it. Um, it, uh, I, it, it, I'm i not a fan, but um, the weaves, returning to those and sewing things down was a nice counterpoint to that. Um, You know, that said, um, it, it ended up making the action feel a little repetitive, it was the same weaves, she was drawing them in different ways, but it looked the same and slow it down and see her from above and doing her thing. Um I don't know if it's just too time consuming with CGI or too expensive it's one area I don't know a heck of a lot about when it comes to like showing us maybe different colors in the weaves or some way of depicting the different elements in a different way within the weaves um it would have helped differentiate it I think a little bit um anyway um back to my point about the magic systems it, they're kind of saying when she does this using all of the elements that anything is possible we've only had two magic users do anything in front of us and so anyone who doesn't know the books is going to just base their feelings about the magic system on what they have seen and right now they're like oh gosh you know they can draw on all of these different natural elements and you know look she, she can do all of these incredible things and yes it makes her tired but she can do almost anything um and not really sense that there are limitations beyond fatigue um and you know it makes you wonder is that why they had to give that scene you know that scene where valda has killed seven aes Sedai um which sort of clashes with that idea that anything is possible it suddenly means their powers are not limitless um and um i'm not is that enough does that work as a counterbalance i'm not completely sold on that because i was shocked as i'm sure a lot of people were that he has all of these rings like they travel in pairs and you never really got the sense that the white cloaks were able to you know kill large numbers of aes Sedai I, i i I can see and feel their reasons for making these choices to, you know, give a sense for eyes and I are capable of a lot, maybe anything, but not really, because if they were, they wouldn't be able to be captured and killed. Um so, you know, it's, it's two extremes where it's like, it seems like Maureen's capable of anything. Um, but on the other end of the extremes, they can be, you know, captured and killed. And it, I guess it's connected to their hands because he had chopped off the hands. And so maybe they need their hands to weave unclear. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be some clarity coming. Um, but right now, it feels like they're, you know, they need more clarity uh, around the magic system so that uh, viewers can know what to expect moving forward. 10 the opening credits sequence um first of all i'm just gonna say it's beautiful uh clearly um you know is it inspired by game of thrones perhaps um but having something memorable and interesting that ties in with the overall theme of things um you know the the weaving and the loom uh all beautiful um I wasn't I like the opening strand pulling apart and then uh, cutting away just before it snaps um, you know visually uh, arresting. I'm not so sold on the the gold um, weaves that uh, happen right after that. It gets much more interesting once the uh, um, viewpoint pulls back a little bit and we're starting to see the different pieces. Uh, the different threads. Um, I, I like the uh, what looks like arrow shots being threads that then end up getting woven in. There's some implication or uh, <clears throat> a, a suggestion of violence within all of that beauty, which is great. The one thing that stood out to me the most though, was that uh, all of the images that they are showing in that sequence are um, are women. And, you know, given the gender uh, underpinnings of Jordan's story and this adaptation, I thought that was an interesting choice, um, really emphasizing the importance of the Aes Sedai and, uh, you know, the role of women in the story. Um, I just found it a little bit interesting, um, and I'm not sure I'm entirely on board with the exclusion uh, of men in that uh, opening credits sequence. Um, it's an interesting choice. Uh, curious if it grows and changes as the story does, just as the Game of Thrones one did. Um, but um, it's an interesting choice, and I'd be very curious to know what the thinking behind that was. Some scenes that I loved. So, um, two scenes that uh, really have stuck with me in the days after watching the episodes um, and really jumped out at me when I watched again with my son. Um, one is the scene with the white cloaks um, very tense very well done you know, Bornhold coming across as somebody who is uh, bound by duty um, and feels uh, like an upstanding guy. That little detail where he says we steer clear of Aes Sedai but you need to seek one out Um, that's a really nice character touch says a lot about him and uh, the tension that he has with Valda Eamon Valda and uh, you know when in doubt uh, when you're writing a scene when you have two characters get them to argue even better is to triangulate have uh, a third element and so it's already going to be tense because you have um, Moraine being, you know, Iod and not being somebody uh, that the white cloaks. Um, you don't want to run into them, especially given uh, what we have seen earlier with uh, Valda having burned one alive after having cut off her hands. Um, but the the three elements where you have Moraine um, trying to hide who she is, um, you have her, you know, navigating that dynamic where, you know, she's just trying to get past them um, and into White Bridge. Um, and it seems like she's gotten over that hump. And then Valda steps in and says, I want to ask some questions. And he uh, jiggles uh, a bunch of the eyes eye rings. I did find it interesting that he checked her hands. Um but, you know, clearly looking for a ring mark, um, did she kind of, she can't heal herself. So like, did he, did she not have a mark? Like she wears the thing the whole time. And if you have rings and you take them off, you know, that there's an indentation there, but you know, maybe she worked it out. Um, but, uh, you know, again, really good tension between the three of them because, Um, that triangulation you have moraine doesn't trust either one of them but seems to uh, respond well to the respect of bornhold Um, does not trust valda bornhold doesn't trust valda Valda doesn't trust either one of them it's just a really uh good dynamic um made for a very tense scene and You know, which pays off with Valda saying, I'm not going to forget a face. And, of course, Maureen saying a little while later, I'm not going to forget his face. He's killed a bunch of my sisters. So planting some seeds, moving forward, again, with some really cool tension in there. And then not not long after, um, the Manethrin song. Um, It's just a really nice moment. You could cut that scene, but you don't want to cut that scene. Uh, it says a lot about the background to the story. It makes the world feel old and lived in. The uh, kids are hearing about how myth becomes legend and legend is lost. Uh, and, you know, the blood that runs through them and that they're going to need to call on that. Uh, you know Resilience um, in the time ahead. It's a kind of scene you look back at and say okay um you know yes the, the the times up ahead were full of trouble and danger and they needed to call uh, on that there's also something about a song and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in number 12 but um that really kind of makes a world feel you know fantasy world in particular feel lived in where you know it's the music of the time and the air you get a sense that there are other people in this world who are Writing songs, you know, ancient songs that have been passed down and are now a part of the world that these kids grew up in, and um, they know it without knowing uh, who the people are, and um, so it just makes, um, it just adds to the tapestry of um, the past and and makes a world feel real. It's it's just great world building. It's great. Um, again, it's a great choice by the producers to keep that in there when it doesn't seem necessary, but uh, really adds some substance to it. So, yeah, love that one. Great choice. Twelve. Tom Marilyn. So um, I'm not sure exactly why I buried him down here in number 12. But um, other than the fact that he doesn't show up until episode three. Um, But I'm really liking him so far. Um, Certainly I've been poking around and reading up on people's opinions, and people seem to be very split on Tom um, because he is, you know, perhaps doesn't jibe with our first impressions uh, in the novels. But um, I'm liking him so far, introducing him just like I waxed poetic uh, just a moment ago, about uh, songs like the fact that he sits down we see a flash of his patched coat and uh, we hear him sing Uh, it really sort of sets a tone for uh, him as a character and uh, you know and, and the fact that they made him like you know a thief who ends up stealing the money away from the person who stole it but then keeping it as an expensive lesson um you know, all of that is character stuff that uh it's fine it works for me um but where he really stood out was when he was talking with Matt uh and about the burying uh of the Aiel uh he and Matt play off each other so well and you get a sense of honor underneath it all um and you get a sense that they are cut of similar cloth uh Matt and Tom and uh it was it it, it was a great scene um for character development um and um i'm really looking forward to where tom goes from here and obviously you get that very shocking violent moment um and we need characters like that um, when he does away with dana Um, you know it's suddenly he is a lot like you know, suddenly very quickly becomes a lot like moraine in that death is just a part of this. Um, And, you know, you can't mess around. Once you've been around in the world long enough, you realize that sometimes you have to make some really hard choices. And, um, you know, Tom is somebody that the kids are going to need. And so I like the tone of him so far. Uh, It's a change that is working for me. Thirteen antagonists now i really like um the opening sequence introducing all of the reds you know for viewers who don't know the books it just establishes right up front um that uh well in particular uh, leandrin is so intense looking um you know i always wonder about you know when people are cast for certain roles you know they back when i worked at william morris And I knew the people in the casting department, the assistants, because all the assistants got to know one another very well. And I think and remember very fondly uh, many of them that I worked with. And they showed me this little printer that would spit out descriptions of characters that uh, they were looking for actors to fit. Um and um you know, I, I think about that often when I'm thinking about like, okay, Leandrin, like but we want someone who is, you know, really sort of got angular, high, high cheekbones, like very intense looking, piercing eyes, uh, someone that you could believe is a bad guy. Uh and uh she um does it so very well, very sneering, and it lets the you know viewing audience, if they haven't read the books, like, okay. This is an Aes Sedai, but, um, you know, and she's dealing with a legitimate problem, someone who is a claim, claiming to be the Dragon Reborn uh, and can uh, use the power as a man, uh, but um, comes across far more negatively than Moiraine. So it sort of establishes very quickly that there is there are factions within the Aes Sedai, um, different approaches, uh, and, um, you know, so that it's a potential source of antagonism and we know this right up front. Um, so, um, I thought that was well done. And then, um, you know, again, for overarching antagonists, you know, outside of, you know, cause we know the, the Trollocs and the Murdrals are, the Fades are, um, foot soldiers, like they're not the main bad guys. So we need to get hints and glimpses of, uh, more influential antagonists, and so we are getting this dream presence for the three um, guys um, all having similar dreams. And, you know, I, the, the first early shots of just the glowing ember eyes from a distance, um, frankly, looked a little cheesy to me, but the last one... Um, where you know the eyes are very close, and we get to see some of the area around the eyes. That was pretty intense. That was pretty good. That was pretty cool. Um, so I'm looking forward to um, how they you know, in the next five episodes continue to flesh out that character. Um, and you wonder is that is he is that presence going to become? the issue that they are dealing with by episode six um given that we keep hearing that that is um the episode to watch for so uh yeah some antagonists to play with so uh interested to see where it goes that's it for this edition of the baker's dozen uh, thanks for listening uh, and indulging this different format. Again, um, reach out to me at b13podcast.com and let me know uh, if you like the heavily scripted shorter version or if this free form way works for you. Um, I'll be back next week with another Wattcast where I'll offer my thoughts on episode four. I'll talk with you then. Be well.